afternoon. Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. You are listening to this on Sunday, December the 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will be rebroadcast on Monday, December 18th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we are recording this on Saturday, December the 16th, 2023. My name is Jasmine, and this week I'm here with two of my friends and co-hosts, Reese and Janet. How are you two doing? Just getting into the holiday spirit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still trying, but I think it will shift when I come east this week. So hanging in here. How are you doing? I'm similarly hanging in there. I think we talked about a little bit last week, like feeling like, you know, with everything going on, it's it's not doesn't feel the same trying to get into the holiday spirit. But, um, you know, trying to appreciate moments of joy and stuff while we can. Same with the game, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm hanging in there, like I always say, and happy to be here with the two of you. Well, our voices are all together. We don't we're not looking at each other right now. Exactly. Grateful for the show and for you guys and your conversation. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So this week we are going to be talking about the building collapse that happened in the Bronx. Uh, very troubling. Uh, artificial intelligence and also a genocide that's currently unfolding in Sudan against the Mazalit people. Uh, so up first with our local news story, we have Reese. So this story is from the New York Times. Um, the title of the article is New York suspends engineer who inspected Bronx building that collapsed. Officials said the inspector had misdiagnosed as a decorative element, a column that was holding up the seven story building and the author of this is Patrick McGeehan, an engineer who oversaw inspections of the Bronx apartment building that partially collapsed on Monday, misdiagnosed a column that was holding up the building, calling it a decorative element and plans he filed in June, city officials said Friday. Mayor Eric Adams and the city's building commissioner, James Odo, said the city has suspended the engineer's authority to inspect building facades and would seek to permanently revoke that authority. Nobody was killed or seriously injured in the collapse, but it left more than 170 residents of the building at 1915 Billingsley Terrace with no place to live. In addition to the building's department, officials said the Bronx District's Attorney Office and the city's Department of Investigations were investigating what caused the collapse. When those who are entrusted to keep us safe cut corners and make catastrophic mistakes, we're going to take swift action to hold them accountable, Mr. Adams said in a statement. He added that the engineer had no business assessing the exterior walls of the buildings in New York City. Mr. Odo said in the statement that the engineer had failed to recognize a clearly structural column as such. We got lucky that no one was killed in the collapse, he continued. We will not take that risk again. Mr. Odo did not identify the engineer, but Richard Koisingberg, a veteran inspector of facades in the city, said in a brief interview on Friday that he had filed reports about the building's conditions. His name is on a June filing that was updated in September, building's department records show. Mr. Koisingberg declined to comment on the allegations by the mayor and Mr. Odo. He said he had not been contacted by city officials since being interviewed the morning of the collapse. 
I haven't been disciplined in my lifetime, so I'm not familiar with the procedures, Mr. Koizenberg said, adding that he would hire a lawyer and follow the lawyer's advice. Mr. Odo said the unnamed engineer had 368 filings under the building's facade inspection and safety program and that the building's department would review them all as a part of its investigation. Mr. Koenzingberg said in an earlier interview that he had filed reports with the city that deemed the facade unsafe, but he said he was indicating in those reports that pedestrians needed to be protected from falling debris, not that the building was structurally unsound. A corner of the seven-story building cascaded onto the sidewalk mid-afternoon on Monday, sending pedestrians and motorists running for cover and leaving bedroom walls exposed and clothes flapping in the breeze. So that's the article. It's a little short, um, but nonetheless, it is kind of scary that this man has 368 other buildings, um, you know, within his profile that he was responsible for reporting on. Um, not too long ago, I remember us doing some story about another building collapse like this. And what we don't think about is how long those buildings go without being updated, you know, any sort of electrical or plumbing issues that could cause the deterioration of the building. A lot of times it's overseen um, because people are just trying to hurry up and get past the point. But now there's 170 people who don't have anywhere to go. And it's really unfair that this is happening to them. And I, you know, I feel for them because where, where are they going to go? It's cold, it's winter. And, you know, somebody has to be held accountable, not just being suspended, but helping these people get housing. Yeah, it's a really terrifying notion. I'm, I'm so glad that nobody was killed in the accident. And I hope that the response is that um, we tighten up, you know, investigations of buildings and, you know, it's like almost like it not obviously all these people displaced is horrible, but lucky that no lives were lost. And hopefully the government response of the city will be to tighten up these investigations of buildings, inspections, look at other buildings that are from a similar era for, you know, similar structural weaknesses but living in old buildings in new york you know you always kind of hear creaks and cracks and i know my building if the person upstairs is doing exercise or stomping around i can feel the ceiling cracks expand <laughs> and i'm always like is this is this a strong building i'm sure somebody makes sure it's strong but then again maybe not maybe maybe there's not enough inspection going on yeah, it's reminding me of um, there was that f terrible fire that I want to say was also in, was it in the Bronx in NYSHA housing or was that uptown in Manhattan? Yep. In the Bronx. That was yeah. also was in, the in the Bronx. Bronx. I remember we did that story. We covered that here. Yeah, and there were um, a lot of um, West African immigrants in particular that were then rendered homeless when that happened. And it was like, um, in this situation, and it's also, I don't know if you saw that story, it happened in Atlanta or somewhere in Georgia recently, and everyone was focusing on the fact that this woman wasn't a, was a dumb idea, was not a good idea, but she put off like sparklers or something on the roof and it caught fire and it turned into this massive fire. And in both those cases, in the one in the Bronx and in this one in Georgia, 
there was all this emphasis on like, oh, this person made a bad decision and that was so foolish, da, da, da. And then what wasn't at the forefront was the fact that there had been X number of complaints about the wiring being faulty, about alarms not working, the sprinklers not working, and it was ignored for years. And then all it takes is one thing happens and then it's this massive disaster. And it seems similar here where it's like, this is a horrible tragedy that could have killed many people because of what, like this, you know, people being slapdash, not spending the money to actually maintain these structures that people need to live in. So what, save money, cut corners? Like, I don't, it's really so disgusting. And even though people didn't die in this instance, like you're saying, Reese, where are they supposed to go? Like, homelessness in this country has shot up i don't know if you saw that statistic it's shot up 12 percent, and it's now like the highest it's been like say what seven yeah so i saw the article Seventy thousand new homeless people this year yeah and it's going up and up and up it's like look a lot of people if you're living in an apartment you don't necessarily have some place that you can just pick up and go live with your things if something like this were to happen and the city is not quick to just put you somewhere so you know you might not be dead but you're in such a hellish situation at that point like what is your life going to even be exactly and presumably their belongings were in the building and exactly uh, destroyed blowing in the wind yeah can you imagine coming home from work and your fucking building is like collapsed? Uh, you know, I, I couldn't even imagine a level of stress. Like, what would you even do? Where would you even go? You just get off the train, come around the corner, your building's just not there anymore. Your shit's just all over the street somewhere. It's, yeah. That's a different, it's unnecessary trauma because people are not taking their job seriously and there should be more checks and balances in these systems. And it's everybody's strained with the amounts of money that goes towards rent, you would think that your rent would at least cover building inspection to keep the building straight and standing. I know that we, you know, mentioned the Bronx fire. I remember when that was happening, I looked around my apartment, which is a sublet. And so I didn't really have a full context of, of the space when I moved in, but I went around and I checked my uh, carbon monoxide and my fire alarm in my space and realized that neither of them were working, not just because of batteries, there was like the wires weren't attached anymore. So I had the landlord fix that. Um, Obviously we can't all be in control of inspections of big apartment buildings in the city, but I think it is good to kind of check what's in your power to make sure certain things are safe, um, especially if you have pets. Like he said, the yeah, pillar was decor, like a decoration or something, and wasn't like yeah. and a suspension. Like that, what kind of oversight is that? And he totally missed that it was a part of a huge structural problem to the building. So you know, it's just it seems like he kind of just did like a what a walk around and signed off on it type shit. Yeah, you know, and it's it's horrible because now you're suspended. You're going home. Where the rest of these people going? You know, and suspension is not an answer. I mean, I can't even begin to figure out where they would even go for resources or, you know, people with children. A lot of times there's older people that lives in these buildings because they don't want to move. They don't have any help. 
So, you know, it's just a lot of displaced people right now already in New York City. And then now this just adding to the chaos that's already, you know, on the ground. So uh, prayers up for those people. I hope that they find safe places to be. They get resources and access to help because that's the part of the story that's missing from all of the articles that I've seen on this. What is happening to these victims of this crime? Because it's crime. That's what it is. And where where are they supposed to go for help? So. Yeah. yeah. I do want to look up, and now that we mentioned that Bronx fire from last year, like, what happened to all of those families? Where are they now? Because it's, it's so true. You see the headline when the disaster strikes, but then the follow-up also needs to be a story and needs to be at the forefront of people's minds. And also, you know, everyone in those 368 buildings should be alerted that there's a possibility that there, you know, there may have been some fraudulent bullshit activity with their inspection, or at least those landlords and the people who own those buildings need to be aware and make their residents aware. I don't care if it's telling them that something happened, that they're going to be under investigation, encouraging them to get renter's insurance if they can afford it. But, you know, something like that needs to be followed up with this because this man has the power to do this to so many more people and it's just not fair it's not and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we do come to find out it's not some mistake but it's like a deliberate like some kind of scheme to avoid having to pay to make these buildings secure to just I mean people do it all the time it's like you bribe somebody to pass you knowing that things aren't up to snuff because you don't want to put up the capital to make sure it's actually safe for everyone. And when it's, you know, primarily affecting certain already disadvantaged populations, that stuff is allowed to slide. And, you know, just grateful no one died in this instance, but it has happened. All right, so you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, this is Yell with Interpassion. Or Interpassion. We'll be right back. mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. 
Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next with our national-ish news story. (laughs) I guess it's not super specific to the U.S., but, you know, we have a lot of quote-unquote trailblazers in this field, in this country, and it's relevant to us. Uh, Janet, go take it away. Okay, so my article is from the New York Times. It's titled, Experts on AI Agree That It Needs Regulation. That's the easy part. And this article was published by Alina Tuggins on December 6, 2023. Um, And the article begins with three takeaways from the summit. Number one, The emergence of generative artificial intelligence, such as chat GPT, signals a radical change in how AI will be used in every area of society, but it still must be viewed as a tool that humans can use and control, not as something that controls us. Two, some sort of regulation of AI is needed, but opinions may vary widely on the breadth and enforceability of such rules. And three, for the potential of AI to be realized and the risks as much as possible to be controlled, technology companies cannot go it alone. There should be genuine partnerships with other sectors such as universities and government. Get several artificial intelligent experts together in one room And there's a lot of debate about just about everything from legislation to transparency to best practices, but they could agree on at least one thing. It's not supernatural quote. AI is not something that comes from Mars. It's something that we shape said Francesca Rossi, an IBM fellow and IBM AI ethics, global leader. Ms. Rossi, along with other representatives of industry, academia, and the European Union Parliament, participated in last week's Dealbook Summit Task Force on how to harness the potential of AI while regulating its risks. Acknowledging that AI did not emerge from outer space was the easy part, but how it will be shaped, not just in the United States, but globally, was far more difficult. What role should governments play in controlling AI? How transparent should technology companies be about their AI research? Should AI adoption go more slowly in some fields, even if the capability exists? While AI has been around for decades, when the company OpenAI released ChatGPT a year ago, it immediately became a worldwide phenomenon. Kevin Roos, a technology writer for the New York Times and moderator of the task force, wrote, quote, ChatGPT is, quite simply, the best artificial intelligence chatbot ever, chatbot ever released to the general public. These new types of chatbots can communicate in an eerily human-like manner and in countless languages, and all are in their infancy. When ChatGPT is the best known, while ChatGPT is the best known, 
There are others, including Google's Bard, and most recently, Amazon's Q. Quote, we all know that this particular phase of AI is at the very, very early stages, said John Reese, president and chief technology officer of Dell Technologies. No one can be complacent or think of AI, quote, just as a commodity. It is not, he said. This is something that you, this is not something you just consume. This is something you navigate. While AI has taken a giant leap forward and is evolving so rapidly, it is hard to keep up with the state of play. It is important not to mystify it, said Fei Fei Li, a professor of computer science at Stanford University and the co-director at the university's Human-Centered AI Institute. Quote, somehow we're too hyped up by this. It's a tool. Human civilization starts with tool using and tool invention from fire to stone to steam to electricity. They get more and more complex, but it's still a tool to human relationship. While it's true that in some ways, while it's true that some ways in which AI works are inexplicable even to its developers, Professor Lee noted that it's also true about things like pharmaceuticals, acetaminophen, for example. She said, however, that part, of, that part of the reason most people don't hesitate to take the drugs is because there's a federal agency, the Food and Drug Administration, that regulates medications. That raises the question of whether there should be an equivalent of the FDA for AI. Some regulation is needed, participants agreed, but the trick is deciding what it should look like. The European Parliament is hammering out the first major law to regulate artificial intelligence, something the rest of the world is watching closely. Part of the law calls for assessments of AI using, used in identified high-risk areas, such as healthcare, education, and criminal justice. And I'm going to clip it here, um, but the article does go on to discuss some of the conversations um, that are being had at the summit and just in general with regulating AI. Um, but I brought this topic up because, you know, we are the people who are having these conversations, the people who are developing this technology are making decisions for the rest of us as Americans and as basically people in general. And AI, whether we like it or not, whether we feel involved with it or not, it's pervasive. Um, it's going to affect our jobs. It's going to affect our security and identity. Um, and it could affect our well-being in terms of safety. Um, so I thought it was, there's a lot going on right now with AI. And if you're not like a technology person, it can kind of seem like it goes over your head. But for myself, I find it very existentially frightening when I'm reading through these articles and seeing how rash um, some of the scientists, technology innovators, and political figures are being when they're talking about this topic. It does feel a bit like um, unwarranted and uncharted territories, even though it probably shouldn't. This wasn't, you know, it was in the makes. It was coming for a long time, so. I feel like regulations around this, there should be some level of understanding of why and more information available on how. But it's like, I think it's being avoided because of 
the benefits over the cost um, for most people who would either want to use it or need to use it for good and bad reasons, right? When there's no conversation about rules or regulations, it's because there are there are winners and losers to, to the argument. And most of the people who are going to win are the ones that don't want to be regulated. So for something that we've known is coming for so long, um, is literally running society and has been running society for longer than we probably know the fact that regulations are still even being discussed instead of established this just goes to show who's really a part of this argument and kind of sheds like on who's not yeah i think that's a great point um there was the recent like news break about the schism with sam altman one of the major leaders of a company developing ai um where it was a a group of people working together and they had initially agreed that they were the ones that should be developing AI because it was inevitable that it would be developed, but they felt like they were going to be cautious about it. And they were, their aim was to be um, thinking about the dangers of AI. Um, But then the team felt that this guy, Sam Altman was getting too rash with his decision-making. And so they pushed him out. But the way it's played out is he still has the company um, of company backing where he's leading the AI development. And now like big, powerful um, industries like Microsoft and Google, they're still pushing this thing forward because monetarily they feel it's in their interest to just run away with AI and make money off of it. Um, but we as as the public should be very, very frightened about this because we're not the ones that are gonna be making money. We're the ones that will have our jobs replaced by robots. Um, there's been articles about the military developing AI drones that are even more intelligent than previous generations that could re- wreak havoc in the wars that are being fought. And obviously the world is um, full of wars right now. So adding that element to a higher degree is going to be terrifying. Um, so I, I just, it, this topic riles me up, but it also feels kind of out of my control in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm just going to state plainly, like, I hate all of this. <laughs> I am not a fan. Like, I feel very much like the Luddites back in the day that got a bad rap later on as like, oh, these people are just ignorant and they're against progress when in reality they were, they were like the Cassandras of their time because they could foresee like these machines and having that become like the way to go is going to devalue our labor. We're going to be treated more and more like cogs. And they turned out to be right in a lot of ways, you know, so there's a lot of, um, like in the article you were reading from there, like it's just another tool, like technology always develops, but it's like, you also have to question to what end, you know, there's a lot I of can't things. I believe her comparison, right? To acetaminophen. It's like acetaminophen is not self-aware. How is that a comparison? Yeah. And like, and there's other technological advances where it's easy to think solely of the positive side of it. But then, like, think about something like the automobile. Like, once the automobile became, like, everyone, we've had so many places, like, communities completely destroyed because, like, highways were literally built through them. 
Look at what's happening with greenhouse gas emissions and the over-reliance on driving everywhere that is ruining the earth, literally. Look at the conflicts and the wars and the bloodshed over getting oil so that you can fuel all of this tech. And then even with AI, um, there's an article in Time magazine that came out recently this year the gig workers behind AI face unfair working conditions, Oxford report finds. And this was from July um, of 2023. Like there's people in the global South making like $2 a day. And they're a big part of the, they're the behind the scenes labor of making a lot of this stuff appear human or whatever. It's not all just like some nothing machine somewhere. Like there's still people suffering in order to make this possible for these people to be making money hand over foot. And then what do we get out of it? It's like, oh, you have a more precise weapon that can kill you <laughs> without someone having to like, I guess, beat down your door. Like, I don't yeah. know. I get carried away with it because it is so disturbing. And there's also stuff with like literacy in general is not good in this country and i think i fear it's just going to get worse and worse the more people are like i'm just going to ask chat gpt there's already people that don't understand it's just like trawling the internet for stuff that's been put out there it could be telling you complete bs that's not true at all but people will quote it and reference it and use it to write up things. And it's like gibberish, but it sounds passable as something that would be written and it goes undetected. Like, I I don't know. I could yeah. go on. It's like nightmare fuel. No, it, it is so terrifying. And I'm going to jump back to one of the first things that Jasmine brought up, the, the Luddites. Um, my sister was just telling me about a new book that came out um, about who the Luddites were. So for our listeners, I wasn't really that familiar. I've heard that term before as meaning someone who resists technology. Um, but in England, in the early 19th, late 18th and early 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution was developing, and for England, the beginning of that was that the textile industry was uh, very much changing. Um, it was kind of like the pre-movement before, like we think of in America, maybe the Ford assembly line of people making cars and dealing with one part at a time. This was the equivalent where people who had lived with their families and made textiles in their homes with a complete skill set where they would process everything to completion and had a real um, engagement with that process that was kind of holistic and um, it was a talent and there were guilds and craftsmen's kind of like proto unions. And when the industry started changing and they started in introducing machinery and things like that, the Luddites were the people who were skilled artisans who resisted that. And the government fought back against them and it eventually got violent. But like like Jasmine said, such a good term to use is they were really like Cassandra's where they knew that their lives were about to change for the worst because they were about to be become these, you know, factory workers that have become such a um a consistent trope for us in the twenty first century, right? With everything that happened with people losing their skill sets and being compartmentalized into these meaningless labor intensive jobs 
no fulfillment, uh, controlled by the industry that they work for. And I think that the topic is really hot right now because we're in a new wave of that, you know, from, from the textiles to the car industry change. Now here we are with AI and we're about to be crushed once again by big industry, by powerful men who want to exploit the worker. And so I'm planning to look into that book more. And I, I think there's some really interesting parallels to be drawn. I mean, even if you look at, um, the, it's for something in recent news with everyone's been hearing about the actor strike, right? AI was a big part of that. And a lot of people in the SAG union are not happy with um, whatever the contract is because it still gave up a lot as far as artificial intelligence. And, you know, them, like these big studios having the ability to use your likeness to make up scenes. And, like, there was something where Tom Hanks got caught up in something like that, where, like, they just, they had, like, an AI Tom Hanks that was doing a commercial or something along those lines, and he didn't like it. And, you know, it's like people don't think about the power that they're giving up when they just turn stuff over to this um nebulous concept of progress and technology like it's not a god and it's not automatically for the better you know it's often for the betterment of some to the detriment of most of us you know and it's it's such a mistake to be so single-minded about like oh like these brilliant people like they're leading us to i mean look at the state of the world around us we can see that progress, quote unquote, isn't always what it's made out to be. It's like progress where it's like you have more efficient like killing machines or progress where you're building stuff in such a way that it's poisoning the ground and the water. You know, I just, I don't know. It, it's, it's overwhelming because there's so many people that are either really enthusiastic about this or they're like apathetic and don't care at all. But the implications to, in my opinion, are very, very dark. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think I'm struck so often by how these intelligent uh, technology experts, you know, in some ways they're this, you know, greatest minds of our generation in some regard are also the biggest fools because, you know, they just push, push, push towards the development of this industry, but they don't have the, and I'm gonna, of course, push humanities, cause that's what I majored in in school. But, you know, we've really had this breakdown where it's everything's emphasizing STEM, right? In colleges and stuff and taking away from the liberal arts and all these humanities courses. But, you know, we have a generation of people where if you're at the top of your class in STEM, you know, do you have that conscience about humanity, about history? Do you know the stories? You know, and it's like these people are just, you read like the article I just read and Jasmine pointed out like, you know, how these people come off where they're not worried and they're pushing forward and they feel like it's in control and that this is a tool. And it's like, the I'm sure these people are very brilliant, but how could they miss what we're, what they're doing to us and what, what, power they're unleashing and how ugly things are going to get you know it's 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 just um it's very disheartening at the least it's not a miss it's an avoidance <laughs> in yeah some cases. i do yeah, yeah. maybe if they don't feel it'll affect them so they don't care or, know, or there's some people it. that are really dark-hearted in this world and they really do have this like 
they do not care what happens to the masses. Like they think they have some escape plan that they'll be okay no matter what. So yeah, it's like there are people that are ignorant. They have, they don't know. And then there's people like Reese are saying, like they're deliberately misleading others into a false sense of security because they don't care or they want for things to get out of control. Like they don't value what we do. It's really, and like that ignorance of history is spot on. Like I, like there, I think Mark Zuckerberg is talking about having some type of village where people who work for Facebook all live together. It's like Facebook years ago was trying to build like employee housing, like in a certain place. And there was some, it must've been a very young person. I hope that it was a young person, but they're like, it would be a great idea like if everyone who worked for the company they provided you with housing and then you just had everything you need and people were like you mean a company town do you not know what company towns were what that what the hell that was for the worker like you're trapped in a you can't work anywhere else they can treat you however they want you can't go anywhere that's not a positive thing but I'd bet a million dollars these kids have never been taught anything about that history. And it's recent history. And But they're just, yeah. oh, yeah, like, sounds great. It's like... It's like back to the chicken farmers we talked about on this show, you know, where they're the only industries you can be in is Tyson and Purdue in this one town, and you're at the mercy of these horrible industries. You don't want to live like that. Nope. So you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is Nobody's Fault But Mine by Mary Clayton featuring Oren Waters, Judith Hill, Tata Vega, and Charlotte Crossley. We'll be right back. Nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine If I die and my soul belongs Nobody's fault but mine Oh yeah I had a mother who could pray I had a mother who could pray Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
And uh, for our world news story, uh, this information comes from Reuters. The article was published today, well, yesterday, December the 15th, 2023. It was written by Maggie Michael. And um, just as a heads up, this article was like 13 pages long. It was quite lengthy, so I cut down quite a bit for the sake of time. But I really encourage you to read it in its entirety if you're able to. The title is Arab Fighters Kill Babies, Boys, and Men in War in Su on Sudan Tribe, Mothers Allege. Um, so just as a side note, um, I, I'm pretty sure most of the people listening to us are American, and I think in a lot of people's minds in the U.S., when they think of uh, someone who is an Arab, they might think of someone like uh, Rami Malek, who was in iRobot. He was also the guy who played Freddie Mercury in Queen, or uh, Rami Youssef, who plays um, like a fictionalized version of himself on the show on Hulu, Rami. Uh, like their lighter skin, straightish, or sometimes curly hair might be a little on the brown side. But actually, people who are Arab can come in a wide range of skin colors and presentations, like how they look physically. So when this article is talking about Arab fighters um, being against, you know, darker skinned black people, a lot of these, the Arabs that are being referenced are people that probably in our context would look like black people. They would be identified as black. But in this context, like they are a separate distinct group that is currently the majority of the population in the country known as Sudan. Um, and I'm going to read a, some of the background part of the article first and then go into the specific anecdotes. Uh, so here goes. Uh, West Darfur is the historic homeland of the Mazalit, uh, which is a small, which is an ethnic group within Sudan. They claim ownership of an area that includes both the Sudanese state of West Darfur and Eastern Chad. It is known as Dar Mazalit, meaning home of the Mazalit. In the late 19th century, the Mazalit, who traditionally were farmers, established a sultanate in the area. The history of Dar Mazalit is punctuated with conflict. In the early 20th century, for instance, the tribe fought the advance of French colonizers. The current Sultan of the Mazalit, Saad Bireldin, told Reuters in an interview that the Mazalit spread false rumors that the tribe's fighters were cannibals. That made the French soldiers fearful of the Mazalit, he said. The Sultan's powers, prominent Mazalites say, included collecting levies from farmers during harvest time and mediating tribal disputes. They also allocated land to other tribes to live and work on while maintaining ownership. In the 1990s, however, the government of President Omar al-Bashir, who is himself a Sudanese Arab, like its predecessors, led a campaign to Arabize Sudan as a way of cementing its hold on power. It engineered demographic changes by dividing the land between multiple tribes, a move that weakened the power of the Sultan. Among them were Arab nomads who migrated from Chad during times of famine and settled in West Darfur, fueling competition over scarce resources like land and water, which spurred conflict. 
During Bashir's decades-long autocratic rule, Arab militias armed by the government attacked the non-Arab residents of Darfur, killing them and burning their, their homes. Through the late 1990s and into the early 2000s, groups like Mazalit farmers were uprooted from their lands. In response, rebel groups, mostly from the marginalized non-Arab tribes like the Mazalit, Fur, or F-U-R, and Zaghawa rose up against Bashir in 2003. Bashir retaliated by unleashing the Arab militias known as the Janjaweed on the inhabitants of Darfur. The violence led to the deaths of an estimated 300,000 people by 2008, many from starvation. The RSF, or Rapid Support Forces, was born out of the Janjaweed. The violence in the early 2000s and subsequent sporadic attacks on the Mazalit by Arab militias drove large numbers of the tribe into camps for internally displaced people, many of them in El Janaina. These camps were attacked this year by the Rapid Support Forces and its allies. The goal is to impoverish the nation, starve the people, displace them, and kill them, said Baureldin, the Mazalit Sultan referring to his tribe. He spoke to Reuters in the Chadian capital of N'Djamena, where he fled amid the assault on El Janena in June. The Arab militiamen were hunting for boys that day. That's how they found two-year-old Ibrahim Saleh. Ibrahim, his baby sister and their mother, Safa Abdel Karim, were on the run in June, fleeing a week-long massacre, a weeks-long massacre in the Sudanese city of El Janena. Arab militiamen had shot, stabbed, and burned to death members of their tribe, the darker-skinned Mazalit people. Abdel Karim's husband was among the dead. Along with dozens of women and children, she and her kids were trying to make it to safety in neighboring Chad. They almost did. About 10 kilometers from the border, she said, Arab paramilitary forces and militiamen stopped them and ordered her to hand over Ibrahim. They looked inside his clothes to inspect his sex, then set him down and began bashing his head and body with wooden rods. Safa Abdel Karim, speaking in a refugee camp in Chad, said her two-year-old son was beaten to death by RSF and Arab militia forces as she fled a massacre earlier this year. They said, if the boy grows up, he will fight us, she recalls the men shouting. He was crying, Mama, Mama, Abdel Karim said. When she tried to rescue him, one of the men shot her below the shoulder, she said leaving a scar from the wound. I kept screaming to leave my son, don't kill my son. The men kept striking Ibrahim. You Zerga won't stay in El Janena, the men shouted, using a racist term for darker skinned people like the Mazalit. They said if the boy grows up, he will fight us. Bleeding from her wound and with her daughter in her arms, Abdel Karim said she kept trying to stop the attack on Ibrahim, but the men continued beating him until he lay dead. Abdel Karim was one of more than 40 mothers who described to Reuters how their children, mostly boys, 
were killed by Sudan's rapid support forces, paramilitary, and its allied Arab militias during an ethnically tar targeted killing campaign this year in and around the West Darfur capital of El Janaina. Her son and the other children were all part of the Mazalit tribe, which was a majority in El Janaina until the RSF and Arab militias forced them out. Around half a million people, mostly Mazalit, have left for Chad as a result of the violence. Thousands have died in the attacks. The dead include women and girls. Mazalit women also have described enduring sexual assault at the hands of the Arab-dominated RSF and its allies, as Reuters detailed last month. But in the killing sprees, witnesses say Arab forces have specifically targeted males for death, from infants to adults. Um, so I'm going to stop reading there just because, um, as they mentioned, there's um, over 40 different um, mothers were, and other people in this refugee camp were sharing their stories of what has been happening. Um, but I, please do read the whole thing. I think it's important not to um, be ignorant of these things, but just very... Um, horrible you know and just another of unfortunately like several genocides like ongoing around the world right now and um, this particular group of people um, where they happen to be located there's very little access to like cell phones and things like that so it's even easier for these types of things to just kind of happen in darkness like you know without them being able to get their stories out um but uh, this reporter was able to, in this special report, gather a lot of these anecdotes. Jasmine, thank you for, um, you know, it's a hard, hard story to read through. Um, I know to hear kind of that level of violence against a child. Um, and, but I think it's important that we do take time in our days to sit with these stories and know what's going on. Um, Jasmine's going to bring up some some uh, different links to places where you can help or you know send money and things like that. But it's also just just important to sit with it. And um, I, you know my thoughts go to these mothers and and there's so many different conflicts like this. But an anecdote like that really right away makes you understand what what this is. I don't know if it makes me understand or just makes me, you know, so angry um, and also just so very sad that so many children and, and families are just victims of senseless violence. So um, it's never easy to talk about these things um, or even think about them, but you are right, Janet, in saying that we need to make space um, for lives that in all other contexts are not cared for and, um, you know, it's our our privilege to share the stories, to remember people who have lives, who have dignity, who are being taken from them for the wrong reasons. Um, much prayers to everyone in that region and anyone else that's dealing with these things right now as we, you know, wrap up the show this week. You can't really get away from it. And it's so hard, you know, to be witness it. I can't even imagine, begin to imagine what it's like to witness it up close and for be a victim. I just, I don't even know if that's healthy for anyone, but it is important for us to acknowledge that these things are happening 
and to share the stories and be the voices of the people whose voices are being taken away from them. Yeah, and I, I thought that this, um, I know uh, we've mentioned it before on this show, and it's just a lot of what gets um, most of the media attention is, a lot of it is dominated by like who are like allies with the U.S. Like there's a lot of political reasons why many different things can be happening around the world, but there's one particular conflict that is, you know, what you see the most news about. Um, and, but I know, like, in the context of, like, the current, like, Israeli, like, ethnic cleansing and genocide happening against Palestinians, I've seen a lot of well-meaning people emphasize uh, children and women, specifically children, at, but it's almost done in a way as if, you know, even if 100% of the people being k killed were all men, that would still be wrong and it's unacceptable. And in the context of like refugees and people running away, there are like Western powers that will exclude like boys and young men. But uh, I can't remember who, whose uh, writing I was reading, but they were explaining, and this article reminded me of it, they were like, well, when you think about it, when you're talking about these war-torn areas, who are the first people to be snatched up and like forced to be a child soldier or who are marked to be annihilated? Often it's boys and young men, like military age men. And um, in this Reuters article, um, there was a scholar who was saying that what's happening with the mausolee is very similar to, to what happened with um, young military age uh, Muslim Bosnians uh, during that conflict, like that they were killed systematically. And if you know anything about, well, I guess ancient history, or even like if you're someone like me who was forced to read the Bible, you know, this tactic of being focused on killing boys and men is not new. Like it's a very old tactic to try to annihilate a people and you know often take the girls take the women and have them forced to be assimilated into the dominant group but you get rid of who you think is going to fight against you to reassert your group's dominance over this other one um and we see that same um tactic playing out right now and it's uh it's really it's heartbreaking like i can't imagine and um if you go to the web page like you the first image you see is of one of the mothers like in tears like telling her story and it's it's just it's so awful um so if you are on uh twitter there's a hashtag that's um that you can follow to see uh news updates about this issue uh the hashtag is keep eyes on sudan um, there's also a couple Twitter accounts that I would recommend to follow uh, from people in the Sudanese uh, diaspora who are giving updates on what's happening. One is at capital B, lowercase s-o-n-b-l-a-s-t. Uh, the other is at s-i-g-h-a-h-h. -H. Um, and there's also a Twitter account for refugees in Libya, uh, at refugees in Libya all together. Um, 
to follow what's happening with um, people, not just from this conflict, but other conflicts happening in um, sub-Saharan Africa seeking refuge. Um, there's also Save Al Janena, S-A-V-E-A-L-G-E-N-E-I-N-A. -E -E um, there's a PayPal account for them to try to get support to people in this refugee camp now at paypal.me forward slash H-O-M-E-T-A-X. Uh, so use your own judgment. Like I can't personally vouch for um, that specific account, but if you feel comfortable, like that's one place that you can give. Um, so you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more Brooklyn-based community radio. Um, and for our last song, this is Peter, Peter Gabriel with Mercy Street. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Your daddy's song